Episode 3, Michael Goldberg, receiver for Jay Peak. You're listening to the EB5 Superheroes podcast. Join host Matt Trash as he interviews the EB5 industry's courageous men and women. Leaders protecting the path to the American dream for the good guys and foiling the sinister plots of the not-so-good guys. Billions of dollars and families' lives are at stake. Go behind the scenes as our EB5 superheroes tell their stories of triumph against adversity, paving a brighter future for EB5. And now, financial engineer, industry expert, and EB5 superhero, Matt Trush. Welcome to the EB5 Superheroes podcast. I'm Matt Trush, your host. For those of us living in the EB5 world, we've grown thick skin and learned to buckle up tight for the roller coaster ride we lovingly call EB5. EB5 is an incredible federal program that has brought tens of billions of dollars to the U.S. economy, created hundreds of thousands of new jobs, and helped countless families legally immigrate to the U.S. But it's been a bumpy ride, to say the least. There have been cases of fraud, swinging pendulums of regulatory uncertainty, unnecessarily long processing times, program sunsets, and even twilight. But there's a light at the end of the tunnel. EB-5 can once again become the best and fastest and most stable letter combinations in the alphabet of U.S. immigration paths. EB-5 can regain its highly competitive position versus other countries' immigration investment programs. EB-5 is poised to navigate America out of another economic downturn. Now is the time, more than ever, for the good guys and good gals to make the dream a reality again for those who believe in EB-5 and the American dream. Meet the EB-5 superheroes who are on the front lines of making positive change, the courageous leaders who are shaping the course of EB-5 for good and triumphing against adversity. Get the inside scoop, hear their stories, learn from real-life successes and failures. Billions of dollars in families' lives are at stake. Join me in welcoming EB-5 superhero Michael Goldberg partner at Ackerman and receiver for Jay Peak. superhero Michael Goldberg welcome to the show thank you it's good to be here Matt Michael when it comes to foiling the nefarious plots of sinister EB-5 villains you're the EB-5 superhero that comes first to mind well I don't know that I'm the one that foils the plot typically it's the SEC but I come in and certainly help pick up the pieces EB-5 superhero celebrates industry leaders like yourself who are protecting the path to the American dream for the good guys and preventing the not so good guys from doing the not so good stuff let me first brag about you just a little bit Michael Goldberg chairs Ackerman's fraud and recovery practice. You're known for unraveling high-profile investor fraud, including Ponzi schemes, receiverships, and EB-5 investment investor visa program wrongdoing. You've earned a reputation for forging consensus and seemingly irreconcilable disputes. So before we talk about your role in the JPEAK receivership and other EB-5 triumphs, tell listeners a little bit about Michael Goldberg, who you are, where you're from, and how did you get into this business of being an EB-5 superhero? Sure. Um, well, grew up in New York and always had Florida connections. My mom went to high school down here and I uh, came down here at an early age, met my current wife, who was then my then girlfriend, and uh, at 17 and moved down here. We have three children in Florida, and although they're now living all over the place. And sort of like anything, I think you just fall into it. I was a bankruptcy lawyer by trade and I have an MBA in, in finance. Oh. And when I came down to Florida, it's the fraud capital in the world. Huh. And Florida leads all types of fraud, whether it's EB-5 fraud, Ponzi schemes, Medicare fraud, all various kinds of insurance fraud. Florida is the leading area. So I came down here and 
My first job, I started working with an individual who did SEC receiverships, and that's how I sort of fell into it. Well, why is Florida the the hotbed of uh, fraud? Is there anything about the the weather that uh, makes that happen, or what would you attribute it to? I think there's a bunch of factors. Um, I would tell you, in no particular order, we have a lot of retirees down here, and retirees come down here with their life savings and. You know, especially in the last 20 or so years when interest rates have really crunched down close to, you know, a couple of points or less, the retiree who has saved for their retirement, you know, that let's say they retire at 70 and they have, you know, a half a million dollars saved up and they start doing the calculations in their head. Okay, I have a half a million. I'm, I'm going to spend 50,000 a year. And if I live past 80, I may, may run out of money. And then they start to, in the effort to get more interest, uh, like when my grandparents retired, I think it was like 14 percent in the bank. Well, now it's, you know, a point, point and a half if you're lucky. So I think they look for other ways to go and find ways to make their money stretch out. And there's a lot of unscrupulous people down here in Florida. I'd like to, you know, I, I speak regularly to uh, the regulators and I start off with welcome to Florida. Our three largest industries are citrus, tourism, and fraud. But the other thing, if you take the map of the United States, and if you're looking at it and Florida's the spigot, and my old boss from 30 years ago said, all the sludge kind of just drips down to South Florida from the whole country. No, we're, we're known to have a lot of fraud down here. And I do think, as you mentioned, the weather does entice people. If you're going to commit fraud, you're not tied to a specific location. You might as well come to South Florida where the weather is nice and you can play mm -hmm. golf and do whatever you want to do. So really it's so. preying on the uh, the elderly and the unsophisticated investors who have this disposable income and they're looking for ways to employ it hopefully to increase their nest egg and not the opposite. Yeah, at least in like the types of fraud like Ponzi schemes, obviously EB-5 preys, preys on uh, immigrant investors and Medicare fraud and other types of fraud preys on the government as well. But we, we, we definitely have a lot of disposable income down here that's mm -hmm. uh, ripe, our retirement savings that's ripe to be uh, stolen. Mm -hmm. And so that's how you got into the EB-5 receivership because you had experience with, of dealing with fraud cases in uh, Florida? Yeah, so I have um, a very large, uh, probably the largest Ponzi scheme practice nationally. And EB-5 is just a, another type of fraud that goes into receivership. And I guess my background having receivership experience in Ponzi schemes lent itself where the courts started appointing me as a receiver in these EB-5 cases. And I had to learn the immigration issues as okay. I went along. So for the listeners who may not be as familiar, give them a little bit of background about what happened at Peak and the fraud that, that happened there and, and how you got involved as a receivership, how much you may have already been able to recover and, and what's where are you in that process so far? Sure. So Peak was this a development of, started out as a resort. Uh, that was developed in phases in northern Vermont, very close, about five miles from the Canadian border. And it was a very successful, I wasn't really practicing at that time, but I'm told one of the poster child for success in EB-5 money raises. The interesting thing about Jay Peak is the regional center was government backed by the state of Vermont, where in most places, it is usually a private regional center. Jay Peak had the state of Vermont running the regional center, which also gave it some more legitimacy. And it had the politicians, you know, there's one famous picture with Bernie Sanders with a shovel and the then Governor Shumlin with a shovel and the other senator, um, the, the big senator from uh, Vermont. They were all uh, with the shovels. It was a very well-known project 
And it took this small, sleepy town of Jay, Vermont, which had just really had a nice mountain and a couple of, you know, nothing. Really, it was around there. And Jay Peak, this resort built up around the mountain and in a series of seven phases, actually six phases in Jay Peak, they built the first hotel, then a second hotel. Then they started with the golf courses and the townhomes and the uh, water parks and the ice rinks until they had this massive 4,000 bed resort um, that was developed all using EB-5 money. And it turned out that as the resort was developing in 2008, 2009, a gentleman named Ariel Kiros came in and bought the resort from a Canadian company that started the first project in the EB-5. And what he did is he tricked or or with the cooperation, we we still don't know exactly, the old owners into into allowing him basically to buy the existing resort with their own money. And he took it over. When he did it, he had a a hole of about $25, $26 million. And every time he went out and raised money, he had to backflow it. So when he he started developing phase three, he took money from from phase three and had to finish phase two in phase one, where he had stolen money from. And then phase three, was short. So when he went to phase four and you combine that with the money he took out for his personal living, which was tens of millions of dollars, by the time we got to phase seven, which was a non-JPEAK related um, entity, um, although an EB-5 entity by the same same sponsors, they were short $100 million, let's say, because he had backed it in. And he kept, he even did a phase eight and that was short. And at that point, the SEC, who had invest, been investigating him for a couple of years, came in and they went to the district court in Florida. That's where Mr. Kiros was from. And they presented their their case ex parte, which means without notice. They put in all the affidavits and everything showing that this fraud was occurring. Um, the district court judge agreed and appointed me receiver over the project. Wow. And how much EB-5 had, the, um, had these different uh, several phases of JPEG um, already taken? And um, so how much was lost from these EB-5 investors so far? Well, the total raise was somewhere around $550 million. And uh, the total loss when I came in was somewhere in the neighborhood. And it depends how you calculate it, but it could be anywhere from a minimum of $100 million to a maximum of a quarter billion. Wow. From $100 to $250 million was lost out of this whole siphoning of EB-5 funds into his own pocket. Now, as the receiver, what do you do to try to uh, recapture those funds? How much have you succeeded at uh, securing so far? How much is there to go? How much will actually make it to the pockets of the EB-5 investors and how much will sort of be um, part of the um, upkeep of this um, of this project? So that that's an interesting question because these EB-5 cases, if this was a normal fraud receivership without the immigration EB-5 aspect, we would have just sued people, taken the money, and given it right to the investor. In this case, we had to still focus on job creation and creating jobs. And if you speak to many of the EB-5 investors, you know the ones that um, the ones that got their green card already and 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 everything. They say, oh, they'll tell you this was all about the money. This was all about the investment. The ones that were not fortunate enough yet to get their green card and are still waiting on it or get their I-829 approved, they'll tell you, we don't care about our money. We just want our immigration status. We made a decision, a policy decision early on. When I say we, the court, myself, the SEC, that this case really was around obtaining immigration status and citizenship. And we made a decision that we were going to look 
at producing the amount of jobs for everyone to get their immigration status. So I brought several lawsuits and settled them. And everybody has settled without admitting or denying any complicity. And we do that. That's normal. The first lawsuit was a technical lawsuit. And I did not accuse them of doing anything wrong. It was against Citicorp. And that was settled. It was a $17 million claim. We settled for about $14 million. Mm-hmm. The next lawsuit was against Raymond James, which was the biggest of the lawsuits we brought. And we settled that for a total of approximately $150 million. The next lawsuit, we had a bunch of other smaller lawsuits, and I may be missing some of them. Uh, We settled the law firm a lawsuit against a law firm in Vermont who um, helped deal with the securities offerings. And we got about $7 million from that. Um, we just recently settled, and it just was approved, a $32 million lawsuit against $32.5 million against another law firm. And we've settled multiple million, couple million dollar lawsuits along the way. I mean, I think if you total it up, by the end, we'll be north of $200 million in recoveries in the okay, case. So there was, there was a, a loss of about $250 million to the whole fraud issue. And now you've recovered so far, hopefully there's more to come, over $200 million. So will the EB-5 investors just get that money returned to them? Or is that money going to be used to invest in the project, to create the jobs so that those investors can actually qualify for the uh, immigration uh, benefits? Tell us, how is that going to play out? Well, let me go through the big lawsuit and tell you how that was dispersed. You'll get an idea. So I mentioned a little earlier, uh, there were six phases in JPEAK. Then we had a phase seven, which was called ANC Bio, which was a bioengineering park that they were creating up in the same area of Vermont, um, which was going to be unaffiliated with the hotel. The only difference is, is that money was stolen from that and went to Jay Peak because that hole was created and they needed to backflow the money. And then there was an eighth project called Burke Mountain Hotel and Conference Center, which was about which was a smaller hotel about 40 miles away. And so when we settled the Raymond James lawsuit, it had 150 million, but it called for different uses of it. So the the first, and I'll go phase by phase how the money was distributed. You'll get an idea because I can't really answer the first question of are the investors getting the money? Are we putting it back to the resort without explaining? So phase one through six, the first phase, phase one was treated differently because these were investors who had their money raised by the previous French-Canadian company. And when Kiros came in, he converted them from equity to debt. So they were holding promissory notes. And they wrote about 14, 15 million. So we took that money and we paid them off and we got rid of phase one. But what we did is we captured their hotel that they owned, that they had the lien on, and we gave that to phases two through six, which are the which were the rest. So phases two through six benefited by us paying off phase one. So phase one, um, the excess job creation uh, was then applied or could be applied to the two through six investors. Is that what you're really describing? Yes. Plus the assets are now going for the benefit when they're ultimately sold two phases through through six. Okay. So we, we eliminated um, approximately 35 investors that would share in the proceeds of the hotel when it's eventually sold because they've been paid off. So that'll increase the distribution to the remaining investors in phases two through six. Then we took another five and a half million and we paid off the trade debt of the JP Hotel. So it was an operating hotel. They may have owned food suppliers and electricity, everything. We paid everything off completely. It was about five and a half million. So that's roughly about 20 million right there. Then when we inherited the hotel and I was appointed, phase six, which is called stateside, was 
not yet complete. When I came in, we had all of these unfinished half-built condominiums and we didn't have the rec center built and there was supposed to be a medical center. So we took approximately $25 million and we completed the condos. We com- we've built the rec center from scratch and we scrapped the medical center. We made a decision that having a medical center was not really a revenue producing item. It was actually a liability producing item. And instead we substituted that 5 million and we built athletic fields to help attract investors. So we all together, we put about $40 million back into phases one through six, the 15 to pay off the phase one, the 25 or so to complete phase six. And then actually it may even be a little more, plus another 5 million to pay off the trade debt. Um, And that's so 40 million of the 150 went to those phases. Then we had to pay phase seven, which had all of its money stolen. And there was approximately 85 or so million stolen from those investors. We took, we had 17 and a half million in escrow when we came in. We took that, we paid those investors off because we could identify the specific investors that owned that. We took that money, that money, we paid them off. Plus we took another $63 million or so out of the proceeds, the Raymond James proceeds, and we paid off phase seven. So now you have roughly 100 to 110 million accounted for in the first seven. Then we had to pay off contractors on phase eight and we escrowed $10 million to secure job creation for investors. So in the event we were not able to create enough jobs over in phase eight, which is the Burke Hotel, we put we estimated we would be about 20 people short on jobs 20 investors short on jobs about 200 jobs so we put 10 million dollars to return the last 20 investors money over there and so that gets us up roughly to about 125 and then the final um, thing is the class action lawyers got paid about 23 and a half million dollars so they they worked hard they worked with us and 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 that money went so that's really how the 150 was accounted for and and we were hoping to have enough jobs for everybody we completed the uh, JP and this was all done with court oversight and the court being involved in the decision. We happen to have an excellent judge here who fortuitously did do some immigration law when he was with the government. Um, he was at the U.S. Attorney's Office before he became a judge, and he was pretty knowledgeable, smart to begin with. Obviously, he's a federal judge, but he, it, was, it helped that he had some of this experience. Well, that's fantastic. So not only are you getting involved in rolling up your sleeves to be the receiver, uh, act as the receiver for this um, project, but you've actually now become a developer and uh, a, you know, trade finance experts and immigration experts and, you know, all these different hats that you have to wear in order to, you know, walk along that tightrope of, of EB-5, which has really certain complexities uh, of the interests. You know, they, the investors who have already gotten their jobs and have already gone through their adjudication, they're ready to get out to get their money back. Those who are still sitting there um, without having uh, satisfied just the same period or created enough jobs are, I guess, thankful that you went back and you finished those projects and created the jobs that they need to even qualify. And now, ultimately, um, there will come a day when these investors hopefully will be approved and then will need to get their investment back. That can happen from either the proceeds of what's left from your receivership and or you know, um, an exit uh, event, whether it be a sale of one of those phases or multiple phases, etc. So there is, I guess, light at the end of the tunnel where these EB-5 investors might be able to not only get their immigration, but also see their investment back. Is that what you're aiming for? Yes. Well, yes. But again, it's not as easy as that. So we are actually in the process of attempting to sell the first phases one through six, the JPEAK resort. And it's 
become readily apparent to us, the resort was overbuilt. <laughs> no one in their right mind based purely on economic motive, as opposed to economic and immigration motive, would have invested the type of money that was put into the resort. Okay. We, may, we may have north, we have north of $200 million invested in a resort. Yeah. And, it, and, and it, under any conceivable, not under any conceivable theory, could that ever cash flow to support such an investment? And, and it's like you and I, Matt, you and I deciding to invest in a hotel in the middle of China that we didn't visit. We didn't do an economic study on. We did not you know, go through the proformers and the calculations and really test the veracity of them. And yet we, we took 500,000 of our hard-earned life savings and we sent it over to China. Well, none of the investors that I can see have done any analysis of that. So even if let's assume that Mr. Kiros was a very honest man and didn't steal the money and he just came in here and built this, there is zero chance that these investors ever would have gotten their money back anyway, even if there wasn't a fraud. Because we've recaptured all the money that was stolen and we've done exactly what was promised now, but we'll only sell that hotel for a fraction of the money that's in there. So the investors will take a loss on their investment. Now, whose fault is that? I don't know whose fault that is. Maybe it's the Kiros and even his predecessor for saying we're going to build this hotel and it just didn't turn out to be a great investment. Maybe it's the investor's part for not doing their due diligence well enough. Or maybe it was nobody's fault. Maybe the investors really were more concerned with getting their immigration status. And we're going to have hundreds of investors that are going to get their immigration status and that already have their immigration status that they wanted. So there's, there's definitely going to be a loss when this thing is sold. Well, before plowing some of this $150 million back into completing the phases, um, was there a frank discussion or is there any kind of um, dialogue with the investors to ask them if they even want those jobs, if they even want to stay in line, if they're, if they know that they're going to take a loss anyway, maybe they should, you know, uh, just sign up for that or, or um, check out. So I'm just curious to hear how, you know, it sounds like you, the court and, and, um, and the team who are working on through this really difficult uh, workout here, but also, I don't know if it was in the documents or if it's just common practice, has there been a dialogue with those uh, defrauded investors and, and how have they had to buy into this along the way? Yeah. So number one, the decision is we have to make it on what's the right thing to do for the group based on the initial investment. As I mentioned earlier, certainly if you ask the older investors who got their immigration status, they say, no, don't put the money in. We want our money. Don't right. put the money in. Let's not throw good money after bad. Right. But we made this policy decision with the court, the SEC, and we alert the investors through reports exactly what we're doing. But we made a policy decision that we needed to get everybody their jobs as best as possible. And that was the real reason most of them invested. So we made the decision to go ahead and 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 put the money back in, knowing it's probably not the most prudent economic decision, but it's the decision that gave us the best chance of delivering the real ultimate desired goal of immigration status for every investor. And you know, whether it's the right decision, we don't know, but it is a very principled decision. And it was made based on on really trying to understand what the purpose of this investment was. And we, when we look at it, we don't see any reason that a group of foreign investors, wherever they may be situated, China, Latin America, or Europe, would ever invest in a ski resort in this podunk little village in northern Vermont, but for the purpose of getting immigration status. And that's what... In, 
led us down the path of completing the project to hopefully get the immigration status for everybody. Amazing. Well, it, it definitely takes a lot of courage to make those policy decisions and, and to work it out as you have. And it does seem like you're wearing a lot of hats and making a lot of things happen. You know, as we look at the Ponzi schemes and the frauds and the things that you are often, you know, uh, asked to serve as receiver for, it comes down to a question for the EB-5 superheroes. I want to know, are there good guys and bad guys in this game or in, in EB-5 in particular? Or is it something pandemic? Or is it something that, um, you know, as Pierre Kiava says, that uh, if it, we should pray for the welfare of the government for if not everyone would swallow one another, right? So, <laughs> you know, where where is the, I guess, ultimate cause? We're talking about symptoms and results and, and cleaning up and working out, but what does it all stem from? Well, like everything else in this world, there's good and bad in everything, I think. There are certainly good actors who live up to everything they promise, raise the money, deliver jobs, and return the money to the investors with interest. Absolutely, that takes place in the EB-5 world. But you have to look at it. These immigrant investors are easy targets. They're sometimes thousands of miles away. They entrust their money. They hand it over. And the unscrupulous people are going to take advantage of them. And JPEAK is certainly not the first EB-5 fraud. It's not the first EB-5 fraud I dealt with. And it's not the last EB-5 fraud that I've dealt with or that anybody else is going to see. You know, the, it, it offers these developers and others very low cost of capital and, and mostly non-recourse. And they get to take risk with other people's money and or they get to deal it more easily because... You know, let's face it, our, our government is not as concerned with a bunch of foreign money getting ripped off as it is with maybe, you know, 500 domestic people getting ripped off. So it, it took time for even our government to step up and realize this was going on. The SEC has done a fantastic job. They've shut down a lot of this, but they have a lim- they have limited resources. They can't shut down everyone. And a lot of times by the time they're tipped off to this, it's late. The money's already stolen. I guess last time we spoke, you mentioned to me that you thought that EB-5 was a ticking time bomb. What did you mean by that? Oh, I, I think as it comes time to um, return a lot of the money to EB-5 investors, it's just not going to be there. Or it's going to have been misappropriated or it's going to, the, the investment, like, you know, in the end, again, we rectified all the fraud. We went back, we brought more money in than was stolen. We put it into the project. But I don't necessarily know that the EB-5 investors are doing as much diligence that JP Morgan Chase would be before they're going and lending this kind of money into a project. You know, the EB-5 investors don't underwrite these investments as thorough and as diligent as traditional banks or lenders. So they're lower cost of capital and there's less due diligence. And I think a lot of these investments will fail. There'll be plenty that'll do well and pay off. And we've been lucky. Real estate has risen pretty much all over the country. So there should be plenty of money to repay a lot of these. But uh, even I'm in, I'm in a new case, I was appointed in within the last five months and money was just stolen right out of that project to uh, use for other things for that, that developer. They just literally took the money out of the job creating entity and stole it and transferred it and bought other assets in other entities' names. It's going to continue to go on. I think it's going to continue to go on. And, and a lot of these will uh, result in either receiverships, bankruptcies, or uh, a lot, certainly a lot of uh, legal proceedings. Well, well, tell me, right now, EB-5 uh, is at a lull in that the, um, the program you know, had its sunset and we're all waiting for it to be re-extended. Um, so what is it that we could do if we could sort of turn back time and, and do it right, given that you know uh, the 
problems intimately and, and the, the issues and the places where there are really holes in the system, what could the program do to, whether it be introduce integrity measures or otherwise, protect the integrity of, of those who operate um, on a lawful basis? Yeah, I think, you know, I'm a firm believer in, in audits by a legitimate third party auditor. And I think if the money comes into a project with very defined sources and uses, so you have the source being the EB-5 money with specified uses, and that was audited by a reputable auditing agency, maybe an escrow procedure, and it was, okay, we were purchasing land, that's 13 15, 20 million. Here's the check. Boom. This is what you got EB5 investors for your money. We're constructing it. Here are the plans. And the plans are, you know, market type plans. It's going to cost us X dollars a square foot. And the money is not released all at once. And the developer doesn't get paid their fees until the end, till they produce the project. Um, safeguards such as that would offer a lot of protection into the market. And it's no different than what a traditional construction lender is going to do. We have to take the EB-5 loans and put them more on the par of traditional financing, albeit with a lower cost of capital. And, and I think in the end, these, these investors have to own it a little themselves. They have to ask for the due diligence and require the audits and require maybe the escrows. And, and I think treating them more like what they are, a large part, investments, loans, whatever, it's money and you're using other people's money and there needs to be some safeguards over that. So I think those are certain, certainly certain of the, uh, a couple of things I would want to see in, t- in the process. You definitely get to see the, the not so pretty side of EB-5. What do you think are the, the benefits of the program? And do you think it's something that uh, the government should reinstitute or is it really better to just let it fizzle out and, and see its day wave goodbye? Well, listen, I, I mean, let's look at JPEG. There is a really big silver lining at JPEG. I'm writing paychecks to about 1,350 employees that were not employed up there. The resort is operating profitably. It's a it brings visitors to this remote, economically depressed part of the state of Vermont. It's bringing you know tens of thousands of visitors up there a year. They're stopping to fill up at the gas station. They're going to the grocery store. They're eating out at the restaurants. It's sort of done its purpose. It may have been on the backs of being overbuilt on these investors' backs, but it's achieved the intended purpose of bringing jobs and an economic, I won't call it a boom, but economic, significant economic uptick to this depressed area of Northern Vermont that would have not benefited but for the EB-5 program. And I have to imagine that that is taking place across this country in these various places, despite the money being stolen from the investors. So if we could bring the economic integrity to the financing side from the investors with the audits and and the escrows, then it's win-win. And so I'm a big supporter of EB-5 if it's done right and if it's done with the proper oversight. I'm not a supporter of it if we're just going to hand unscrupulous people a lot of money of other people's money and say, here, we'll see you in five years, 10 years, pay it back. That is going to be, you know, a very, uh, very ripe for fraud and other unscrupulous behavior. So, Michael, what we've talked about today really is how you are, you know, cleaning up and working out the the messes that some of the bad actors have um, perpetrated in the EB-5 industry. You sound like you are creating a silver lining and that you're turning, I guess, you know, bad lemons into lemonade and really, you know, turning things into a positive note. Ultimately, it sounds like the program 
has its merit and is doing a lot uh, for uh, underserved communities. If there can be the, the correct oversight and guidance and I guess uh, incentives to the good and disincentives to the, the not so good to not prey upon unsuspecting investors, as it sounds like that's really what is the profile of a, of a Ponzi scheme and perpetrator, somebody who attacks the weak and, and those who are sort of you know less knowledgeable about the, you know, the situation. Ultimately, there is a path forward where, where EV5 could continue to be an economic driver for the country, a job creator for the country, and one that doesn't have to be sullied by the, the bad apples, but rather can be sweet, as I mentioned, like lemonade. So Michael, where can we find you? And tell us a little bit about your firm, the website, and, and your team of other superheroes who work with you. Tell us a little bit more about where we can find you. Well, I'm based out of South Florida. I told you the fraud capital of the world. <laughs> and uh, I, I've been doing this uh, receivership work for 30 years in fraud and Ponzi schemes. And, and, and I'm easily reachable. All you have to do is Google Ponzi in my name now. I will say that up until about 10 years ago, I'd be the only one that came up until somebody with the name of Michael Goldberg in Connecticut actually committed a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> so so that, that's not great. But uh, if you look at the Florida Michael Goldberg, uh, you'll pull up all my contact information. Really, honestly, the SEC down in South Florida is so active. It's a big office for the SEC because all the fraud down here, the enforcement division, and, and, and they are, I get to clean up the messes that they find and stop. They're doing the hard work. And, um, and so it's, it's, a, it's a team of government agents, myself on the private sector, certainly the judge in this case, and other judges that deal with this. Then you have the U.S. Attorney's Office, and the FBI that prosecute. And in and, and my internal team, you know, I've been working with uh, my group, many of them for up to 28, 29 years. My partner's been with me 29 years. My legal assistant's been with me 27 years. My paralegal's been with me 27 years and a bunch of other lawyers between 10 and 24 years. So it, it's, a, it's a good team and this is what we do. And we, we, we do more of it than anybody in the country. Fantastic. You all are definitely a, a team of superheroes, EB-5 superheroes for sure. And we thank you for all that you're doing for the industry to clean up uh, other people's messes. And we hope that you're giving them um, you know, inspiration to take a closer look at their investments, take a closer look and be able to make force the those who are who are putting together these projects and, and uh, opportunities to be more vigilant and, and diligent so that we can all make EB-5 a positive experience going forward. Yeah. The only one last thing, the only people I would ever see that will ever say no to being audited are people who are intending to do things bad. Because if you're, if you're intending to follow everything properly and do everything, you should have no problem being audited. So that is a gating question that a lot of the investors should ask. And, you know, maybe hopefully that's where EB-5 will go to, but there's certainly a lot of good actors in it. And you don't want to see them penalized by the whole whole EB-5 program going away due to some bad actors. That would not be proper either. Well, thank you, Michael. Thank you so much. I appreciate you inviting me on. Thank you so much. That's a wrap. Michael Goldberg and other EB-5 superheroes like him are the industry's best and brightest who are flying onward and upward to bring out the best in EB-5. Join me on the next episode to meet the next EB-5 superhero. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the EB-5 Superheroes podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe on iTunes, leave a rating and share the podcast with the good guys and good gals who believe in EB-5 and the American dream. To access today's show notes, ask Matt a question or suggest an EB-5 superhero to be featured on the show, visit eb5superheroes.com. 